This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily, World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNXRadio.com studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. Early on in this pandemic, the scientists figured there were lots of people spreading the virus without realizing it, the asymptomatic cases. Some studies showed maybe 45% of people with the coronavirus would never experience symptoms, or at least not feel them strong enough to know. New research is out, shows the rates of asymptomatic carriers about 18%. So we'll look into what uh, that difference means and what it changes or what it doesn't. Now, we've talked a bit about Europe's second wave of cases. It could be much worse than the first one. We'll get an update on the vaccine trials from doctors who are directly involved in one of them. But let us start with the news about asymptomatic cases. Dr. David Aronoff is director of the Division of Infectious Diseases at the Vanderbilt University Medical Center. Doctor, theories as to why these numbers have been changing. Well, I think the the main point is we know that people without noticeable symptoms or symptoms that are really bothering them are continuing to drive this pandemic. And uh, what we're seeing in a study like the one you mentioned, for example, is based on very careful surveying of families and households where somebody tests positive for COVID-19 and then really scouring for symptoms in household members. And that kind of research is sort of designed to really pick up on very sensitive symptoms that maybe somebody otherwise wouldn't necessarily think about. So I think the the big point here is that there is a substantial fraction of people who are shedding SARS-CoV-2 virus, and they're just not aware of it. Well, and, and as you know, in the very early days, early days, a few months ago uh, of the uh, pandemic, everyone was told, you know, look out for high fever, for coughing. Then it kind of moved into, well, but some people, other people have no symptoms. But I gather from what you're saying is that what these studies are showing is that there's a whole range of symptoms that are that have been kind of below the radar screen that people don't really equate with COVID and so they don't feel particularly sick. They don't go to their doctor. Nobody knows. I think that's part of it. I think, you know, if it was simply a matter of isolating people who were having the kinds of symptoms you mentioned, cough, fever, shortness of breath, we wouldn't be in this pandemic, that's for sure. This pandemic is being fueled by silent transmission events where people are gathering together, one or more of those people are infected and they really don't know it. And maybe they've got very, very mild symptoms that they're not even really cognizant of, but more likely than not, there is really a meaningful fraction of people who are shedding virus and not symptomatic or not yet symptomatic. Remember that for the people who do get symptoms, they spend two or three days shedding virus before they develop symptoms. And that is really a dangerous part of this illness. We've also added more symptoms to the list as we've gone along, as we've noted plenty of times here. What about the difference, too, between asymptomatic and pre-symptomatic? You know, you could think for a few days that you're not going to have anything show up, but then later on down the line, yeah, you do. And it could be one of these new ones. Yeah, really good point. As we've just talked about, somewhere between 20% and 40% of people who are infected never seem to get symptoms or the symptoms they have just don't register. We consider them asymptomatic and they tend to shed less virus than someone with symptoms. However, for that majority of people who go on after after they're infected to have symptoms, 
for that two to three days before their first symptom starts, they're in that pre-symptomatic window. They are shedding a tremendous amount of virus, similar to the amount they're shedding when their symptoms finally arrive. And it's those two groups, the people who are truly asymptomatic and the people who are about to be symptomatic that are really fueling this ongoing pandemic. Can you give us uh, briefly some uh, some examples of some of the symptoms that perhaps in the past uh, nobody equated with COVID that somebody now who, who might be listening to this maybe has and they're not even thinking that, ah, maybe this is COVID? Yeah, really good point. First of all, some people develop low-grade body temperature elevations, low-grade fevers, and they don't really realize it. That's one reason businesses are often um, checking for fever in their employees that they're just not aware of. Second of all, it may be something that seems benign, like a stuffy nose, um, a, a slight sore throat, some nasal congestion, or a cough that you just attribute simply to something else. And then we're also seeing people with mild stomach upset. So maybe all they have is a little bit of nausea or a little bit of diarrhea. And that absolutely can be the earliest symptoms of COVID, but it's just not very specific. Your big picture worries as we head into the next couple of months. I mean, we are inching closer and closer to this, you know, 100,000 case a day mark. And it's just going to get colder in the parts of the country that get cold. Well, you really hit the nail on the head there. I think the big concern is that as people go indoors, uh, that they may be congregating with people who they don't live with. Um, they may not be wearing face coverings. They may have extended contact periods of time indoors to stay warm. And that's what's going to foster virus moving from person to person. So I really urge people, you know, be careful. Try to stay in well-ventilated areas. Watch the distance between you and others. Wear your face coverings when you're in indoors. And definitely, this is the season to get your flu shot. Is it too late to head off these worst case scenarios and and i'm guessing as a doctor you're going to say well it's never too late but sometimes it is too late is it no i don't think so at all because you know we showed early in this pandemic and we've shown in in different states that when you get people to wear face coverings and you have stay-at-home orders or you tell people just go out for necessities or don't have gatherings and you can get public buy-in to do the things that are necessary to reduce transmission, absolutely the numbers turn around. And that's exactly what we saw earlier this summer. And unfortunately, we're in a situation now where we have a, we're on our heels a bit and we really have to get people to buy into this idea that public health begins with individual actions and individual decisions to play your part to help this slow down. And I know we can do it. Dr. David Arnoff directs the Division of Infectious Diseases of Vanderbilt University. The U.S. is facing another surge of cases right now, many in the Midwest. This country is far from alone in dealing with a spike. European countries are facing a second wave. Many health experts say it could be worse than the first. WBBM's Cisco Cotto talks to Bloomberg News health reporter Michelle Cortez about how bad it could get. Saw a really terrifying wave early in the outbreak, right in New York City, where everything was overwhelmed in in the city and in the surrounding New York area, New Jersey, Connecticut. Now we're seeing those levels of infection happening across the country. There are many places in the U.S. that have very small numbers of hospital medical care. Those can get overwhelmed quickly, and there's nowhere to go to relieve some of this pressure. We are seeing this happening sooner in in Europe, and the U.S. is following with 
we having there you know there's more cold air people are inside we're going to have the holidays and with people gathering we're expecting it to get worse and are we seeing well let's talk about hospitalizations because it seems like the cases yes that's important you don't want the cases to rise but the hospitalizations are the really serious issue we're seeing that go up too exactly across the board we are seeing increases in hospitalizations and the follow-on deaths that are occurring and it's happening again across the entire united states so this is something that we knew was going to happen as we were doing more testing we were finding more cases uh, so we knew people were were more people were ill and the deaths because the hospitalizations and deaths lag it looked like there was somehow we were just finding people and it wasn't as bad anymore but of course that's not the case the deaths and the hospitalizations do follow and that's what we're seeing now and that's why you get even more emphasis on social distancing and even some of the shutdowns that have been happening uh even in those you know those have not really proven any more popular than they were at the beginning people definitely don't want to go back down into to lockdowns you know you don't want to have to quarantine in your house and you know we it, these are our last few days of, of you know good weather and whatnot so people want to be able to get out there and do things but the bottom line is is that we don't have a vaccine now we don't really have a treatment that can help you I mean there is the the antibodies that President Trump got but those aren't approved if you go to the hospital you won't be able to get that unless you're able to participate in a clinical trial, and even then you might get a placebo. So the bottom line is, is the only thing we have are things like social distancing and wearing a mask. And if we don't turn it around now, then entire swaths of the country are either going to have to shut down or we are probably going to be looking at overwhelming our hospitals and then just very large numbers of hospitalizations and deaths. And it's, you know, do you want to wear a mask or do you want to or do you want people to die? That's literally the choice. Michelle Cortez, thanks for your insight. Coming up after this short break, we're moving closer toward a coronavirus vaccine. Doctors at Stanford University are starting their work on the third and final phase of the Johnson & Johnson COVID-19 vaccine trial. They'll work with 1,000 patients. Some will get the vaccine, others get the placebo. KCBS's Rebecca Corral talks to Stanford infectious disease professor Philip Grant, who is the trial's principal investigator. Patients will come in and either get the vaccine or the placebo. And uh, if they get ill uh, with symptoms they'll, uh, that are consistent with COVID, they'll get tested. Uh, if they don't get uh, ill, uh, we'll follow them for two years for safety. Okay, so what is it that we're hoping to find out through this? We're hoping to find out if the vaccine works and also if it's safe. Okay, and this is why we're looking for two years because, uh, you know, it, it'll be approved before that, presumably. It should be approved. We expect to see the uh, data come out in four to six months from now, so sometime next uh, spring. Uh, likely will be approved. Patients will stay on study, um, but they can get the real vaccine if it gets approved prior to the end of the study. But we want two years to make sure it's safe over a long period of time. I see. And so did you say that, that people can get the vaccine once it's approved or do they need to be done with the study? I... No, they'll stay on the study uh, regardless. Um, you know, if, uh, if a vaccine is approved, they can stay on the study and get another vaccine. Okay. And, and, what is the age range of the folks who will be in this? Uh, 18 until uh, unlimited age at the upper end. Okay. And how do you choose the, the people who are going to take part? Uh, we want a, a couple uh, distinct groups. Uh, we want to have uh, individuals who are at risk 
uh, in their either at their household work workplace, uh, so we can see uh, whether it works. Uh, and we also want to have individuals uh, who are older than 60, so we make sure it's safe in, in that age range. Okay, so this is a Johnson & Johnson study? That's correct. All right, so so I, I'm just wondering how it fits into the other studies that are taking part. There's uh, around uh, 12 studies globally that are looking uh, at different coronavirus vaccines in phase three. And uh, there's a lot of different methodologies in terms of whether it's an mRNA, whether just using protein, like on the standard flu vaccine methodology. This is an adenovirus vector vaccine, which is used as a shell of uh, adenovirus. Uh, and then uh, the body makes a spike protein and then, and then makes immune response. Differences between other ones, that's only a single shot. It also doesn't require the same cold chain as other uh, vaccines will. Okay, so, so one brand can get approval before another? Absolutely. Yeah, each one, uh, when they have enough data, will submit the paperwork to the FDA for review. So I wonder how people will decide which one to get, or, or do we pick? I think a lot of it will be, uh, the, like any other issues in health, uh, you know, which blood pressure medication you end up uh, on. So there may be some differences uh, in uh, response by age group. Uh, side effect profile may be different from one to one. Uh, there may be differences in efficacy. So I think uh, it's to be determined uh, which ones will be appropriate for different populations. Uh, but uh, that's where we know. That's what we know right now. It, would they all be basically similar in what's in them? All of them are going to allow the body to make the immune response to the spike protein, which is the outside of the coronavirus. Fire, uh, coronavirus. Uh, but there's different ways the body or the vaccine is allowing the body to make that immune response. Like I said, some will just be uh, injecting the protein itself uh, with an adjuvant to make the body have a better response. Some uh, inject uh, the encoding instructions uh, the mRNA vaccines and the adenovirus vector vaccines are using a common cold um, virus uh, that's been manipulated to have on its inside encoding instructions for the spike protein. So there's different ways that uh, the vaccines um, get the body to produce the immune response, but the end um, uh, the end result should be similar in that all, all the vaccines have shown to be safe uh, and effective will be um, making the body produce immunity to the spike protein. Okay. We've got to go, but it, do you have all the people you need, or is there a way for volunteers to get involved? No, we definitely want uh, more volunteers. The study site is very easy to manipulate. It's both in English and Spanish, and it's EnsembleStudy.com. You may remember we told you last week about a study from Great Britain about how coronavirus antibodies diminish over time. Well, that might have had you thinking that immunity doesn't last long at all. But a new study out of Britain found cellular immunity is present after six months in people who had even mild or asymptomatic COVID-19. Now, that suggests they might have some level of protection for at least that time. Researchers found that while some of the patients' antibody levels had dropped, their T-cell response remained strong. Now, T-cells are another key part 
of our immune system. Well, I like this study much better than the other yes. one. You can find us on the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. I've always liked tea. Oh, they're talking about tea. Yeah, both. Thank <laughs> you.